Morning, Bethel. All right, well, as has already been said, we're in the midst of a two-part series here on marriage and sexuality. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 13.4 and saw why and we saw how we need to hold marriage in high honor. And this week, we're going to focus on sexuality more broadly from 1 Corinthians 6, um, verses 9 to 20. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, you can find that passage on page 955 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, It may be obvious why I would do uh, a series, two-part series on these issues. Maybe you're wondering why it's not longer. Um, It certainly could be a lot longer, but at least I think this is hopefully a good deposit um, um, as the Word of God shapes and molds us as, as individuals and as a church family. Um, marriage is obviously a vitally important topic, uh, given the fact that it's intended to reflect the most ultimate of issues, Christ's relationship to his bride. So it's always important, and it's always been under fire uh, in one way or another throughout history. The evil one always wants to take aim at it, and our culture is also doing a pretty good job about making war against it. Um, in addition, the sexual confusion in our culture is reaching some unprecedented levels of acceptance and even, even respectful tolerance and disagreement is not tolerated. Okay, so you may have seen in the news recently, just this past week, Tony Dungy making a statement about the player Michael Sam. So Michael Sam, for those of you who don't know, is the first openly gay NFL player to be drafted. So when asked, Dungy said that he wouldn't have drafted Sam because Dungy was a, was a uh, well-known uh, NFL coach for years. Um, he's a commentator now. He was asked, and he said he wouldn't have drafted Sam because he wouldn't want to deal with the media attention. Dungy didn't make any statement directly about his sexual orientation, but people know that he's a Christian. They know where he stands on those things. He was simply saying that cost-benefit analysis, it's not worth, it's a seventh-round draft pick, mediocre player by NFL standards at least. Um, And so many other coaches would have shared that same opinion, they just didn't say it. And they shared that same opinion when Tim Tebow was, you know, in the news because there was a big media, you know, circus that would follow him wherever he went. So some coaches kind of didn't want to have to deal with that. Dungy actually made these statements after the Oprah show had announced that it was going to do a reality show following Sam through rookie camp. Do you see what is meant by media circus? Do you want that in your training camp as this guy's trying to make the team? So Michael Sam is being lionized along the lines of Jackie Robinson. Okay, Dungy is now being demonized. The fickleness of our media and, its, and our culture is, is worth noting. Do you know what color Tony Dungy's skin is? It's black. He's the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl. So not long ago, the media loved him. They lionized him. In fact, he's considered one of the, the 20 greatest coaches of all time by ESPN. But now that he's said something that at least was viewed to violate the dogma, listen to this language, the dogma of liberal orthodoxy. He's declared apostate and demonized and he's been excommunicated. 
It's really like amazing some of the things that have been said about him. Very cruel things said about him. Or, for those of you that don't follow football, maybe you follow tech stuff. And maybe you know what happened back in early April with Brandon Ike. Is that how you say his last name? Former CEO of Mozilla. He's the one that created JavaScript, I guess. After two weeks as CEO, he was ousted by the board after some gay employees made, a pub made public the fact that he had made a $1,000 donation back in 2008 in support of Proposition 8 in the Defense of Marriage Act in California. It's actually the same bill that Bill Clinton signed into law. So because he did that back in 2008, in his private donations, he was ousted, okay? Um, we could multiply examples. One more, um, Jen Marshall, who was our ladies' retreat speaker, wrote this recently. In 2012, Angela McCaskill, Associate Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Gaudelet, a federally chartered private university for the deaf in Washington, D.C., was put on administrative leave after it became known that she had signed a petition along with 200,000 other Maryland, Maryland residents to put a referendum on the ballot for citizens to review a same-sex marriage law passed by the state legislature. Mere participation in the political process was enough to warrant such treatment of McCaskill, the first black deaf woman to earn a Ph.D. from Gaudelet and a 20-year veteran of the staff. Do you know, Bethel, what the definition of bigotry is? Type it into Google of all places, and the definition that they give you is intolerance toward those who hold different opinions from oneself. Now, that's just one reason to hit these things head on, is the confusion in our culture at large. As a result of that confusion, there is a lot of pressure to conform to the new ethical dogma. And we all are going to feel it because we may pay a price, not for being nasty, but even for just graciously, respectfully having a differing opinion. So there's also reason to address these things because we need to know how to graciously, clearly respond and articulate what the Bible says and doesn't say. There's still a lot of confusion in the Christian or so-called Christian world, okay? There are still some, some of the despicable cruelty out there, or at least there's the stereotypes of sandwich boards that say God hates fags. That's not where we are. There's even more capitulation and silence out of fear of repercussions. That can be a result of not embracing wholeheartedly what the Bible says. There are also those who reinterpret or want to reinterpret what the Bible says under, under the banner of Christendom, claiming that certain forms of same-sex relations are not actually against God's design. So there are Christians, Christian leaders saying that. So, all of that aside, though there's reason there enough to address these issues, there's also confusion and struggle. I would be willing to almost guarantee with individuals in this room. People right here or people who will be in this room. I hope they're in this room. I hope they're in this room now. I hope there's more of them in the future. And we need to care for them well and love them well. So we need to address these issues clearly. 
Okay, so Bethel, we need to be a place where we know what we believe. We need to be also a place where those among us who are struggling can talk about sexual brokenness and questions and struggles and not be afraid of the repercussions in here. And Bethel also needs to be a place where we know how to lovingly interact with those who are not Christians and are active in the gay lifestyle or other alternative lifestyles. So what would you do if two women or two men came in this morning and they were obviously gay and in an active homosexual relationship? How would you treat them? We're certainly not going to answer every question today. We'll see how much time we have left for community discussion at the end, but we need to at least take a few steps in the right direction by carefully considering really one of the most significant passages that deal with human sexuality in the Bible here in 1 Corinthians 6. So hopefully you're there by now. Let's pray, and we're just going to dive in and read this text as we go along studying it. Oh God, um, this is a really sensitive subject, and it can be sensitive in so many different ways for so many different people. And you know where each and every one of us is at here in this room, what we struggle with, what might be in the closet from the past or present. You know what each person needs, and I pray that by your Spirit you would guide our time here, that you would help us to understand your Word, and would you break down the resistance where each of us may have it to your wise and loving, good design and instruction for us, for our sexuality. We need your help. We thank you that you have spoken. You are not ashamed to look us in the eyes and deal with our shame. And Jesus died to take our shame on him so that you could honor us, cleanse us with this blood-bought grace that makes us yours and makes us clean and pure and new. And I pray that we would not lose sight of the gospel as we walk through this passage. Thank you that Paul doesn't let us. Thank you that you, inspiring the Apostle Paul, don't let us lose sight of the gospel as we walk through this passage. So please help us, Lord. Help me. Spirit of God, would you shine the light in the dark places and shine the light on the sun, the gracious, merciful lay down his life for us, son, so that we're willing to walk out into the light, knowing that you will meet us there. And you will give us all the grace that we need to walk with you in newness of life. 
pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So there's an outline in your bulletin, which may prove helpful as we walk through. Um, verses 9 and 10. First point. Sexuality is eternally significant. Do you not know, <clears throat> Paul writing to the Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, okay, that term primarily refers to fornication, sex before marriage, okay, nor idolaters, okay, much of the sexual immorality in Corinth, in that pagan city, would have been associated with pagan temples, okay, where cult prostitution and worship went together, okay, so immorality and idolatry oftentimes went together. So, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, we know what that is, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's very interesting. Paul gets very specific here. The English here is faithful, men, plural, who practice homosexuality, but there's actually two terms there in Greek translated as one phrase. The first term refers to the passive partner. And the second to the dominant par- partner in a homosexual relationship. So, the book of the month is God anti gay? And other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same sex attraction is such a good little book. I'd encourage all of you to get it. There's copies at the welcome desk if we run out. It's only $5. Um, we'll get more. But Sam Alberry has struggled with same sex attraction. So he's writing from that perspective, and he writes so clearly, so helpfully. So listen to how well he summarizes what this text says. He's done a great job, and I'm just going to repeatedly recommend this book because I hope that you all read it um, because it's so helpful. He says, the first of the two terms relating to homosexuality is malakoi, which literally means those who are soft. In classical literature, it could be used as a pejorative term for men who were effeminate, for the younger passive partner in a pederastic man-boy relationship, or to refer to male prostitutes. In 1 Corinthians 6, malakoi comes in a, list of, in a list describing general forms of sexual sin, and the context suggests Paul is most likely using it in a broad way to refer to the passive partner's in homosexual intercourse, okay? So, don't don't you know, Corinthians and Bethel, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are the unrighteous? Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. But that's not it. Let's not just, you know, cherry-pick certain sexual things that maybe are not things we deal with. Let's read the whole list nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He repeats it again. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These all, these ten, will, inha- will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, there was a lot of sexual dysfunction in Corinth, and in this fledgling church, there continued to be a lot of sexual dysfunction. If you read through the whole book, you see how Paul had to address it repeatedly. That didn't disqualify them out of hand, That's why Paul's writing to them, so that they would change and understand God's will for them and his good design. 
But Paul is clearly saying that if they don't trust God with their sexuality and turn from those sinful patterns, they will not inherit the kingdom. They will show that their faith was a sham. So Paul makes it very clear that how we handle our sexuality is an eternally significant issue. Don't you know, he says, don't be deceived. Don't buy the lies the culture is telling you. The unrighteous will not inherit. So a couple little observations here on these two verses before we move on. First, we dare not single out homosexuality as the main sexual deviancy. Not even viscerally. For some of you, it's like in the class by itself because of your kind of visceral reaction. We need the Bible to even shape our guts. We should think and feel just the same about premarital heterosexual sex and adultery, which maybe most of us feel that way already, but also thieves, drunkards, etc. So that's the first point. Second little thing to note here, we dare not soft pedal on sexuality in the church. It's actually hateful to do so. Again, listen to Sam Albury. Paul is clear, homosexual conduct leads people to destruction. To teach otherwise, as a number of purportedly Christian leaders sadly do, is tantamount to sending people to hell. This is a gospel issue. Do you see that as the clear implication of this passage? If we were to just kind of, well, we should probably just keep quiet about that. We would not be loving people you guys tracking with that? Yes? So, second point, identity in the gospel, verse 11. So remember that list, and then look where Paul goes next. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, Corinth, hotbed of sexual immorality, pagan temples filled with cult prostitutes, male and female, ready to do whatever, and sexual encounters in the temple were a normal part of the worship of the gods. The gospel invades Corinth. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, no matter how perverse their background sexually. Jesus saved sinners of all stripes. It's the prostitutes that were heading into the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees. So none of those in that list, verses 9 to 10, were beyond saving. And we can say the same about everybody in this room. So, well, we can say that about us in this room. I don't know where each and every one of you are, but such were some of you. I am confident of that. I am certainly a part of that some. I engaged in shameful sexual immorality prior to my conversion to Christ. Repeatedly. But... I am no longer defined by who I was. And many others in the room could give similar testimony. You were washed clean by the Spirit of God. You were made holy, sanctified, set apart to belong to God. You were pardoned of your guilt, declared righteous by God the judge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see it there? washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This is the good news of the gospel. 
for all kinds of sinners, no matter what you've done. In fact, I read just this past week, or maybe it was the week before, a testimony of how God saved a guy who produced porn for years. I mean, talk about just like the bottom of the cesspool barrel, producing it. He was honest about how unglamorous it is and also how much manipulation and abuse and brokenness there is. Like in the middle of a shoot, there's girls just like crying in the fetal position in the corner of the room. So God saves people out of that. God saves strippers. God saves prostitutes. So if you are entangled in deep sexual sin and you want to get out but feel like you can't face the shame or think God hates you and he won't receive you if you come or if you feel like you're dirty beyond cleaning up, listen to this passage. It's inspired by the one who loves to wash and sanctify and justify the dirtiest of sinners. So this text is incredibly encouraging in in that sense. But this text is also one that runs against the grain of so much of the cultural orthodoxy regarding sexual deviance, at least homosexual, bisexual, transgendered orthodoxy. Homosexual, I mean to cover both male and female. So we hear it all the time. Quote, I was born this way. If God doesn't want me to be a homosexual, then why did I have these desires as far back as I can remember? I didn't make me gay. Have you ever heard something like that? Of course, we all have. And then there's a serious backlash against anyone who claims that gays who come to Christ can be healed or become straight. So how do we respond to those issues, those concerns? Listen, should we trust our natural impulses? Any of us. We can't force the culture out there to embrace a biblical worldview. But at least in the church, we can't let the cultural orthodoxy become ours and shape ours. The Word of God has to tell us which impulses are are righteous and which are unrighteous. We've got to trust God in this. So that doesn't just go for those who experience same-sex attraction or even experience transgender, transgender feelings. Listen, what heterosexual male doesn't have perverted, immoral impulses toward pornography and fornication from very early on? Does this mean he was born this way and should lobby the church or the culture to accept porn addicts and fornicators as a legitimate alternative lifestyle? No, we're all fallen. We live in a fallen world. We're born in sin. We're bound to be enslaved by sinful proclivities, okay, and behavior from as early on as we can remember because we're bent. We come out of the womb bent. Even if the genetic mapping were to be able to locate a homosexuality gene, it still wouldn't ultimately impact the Christian stance on homosexuality because we believe in sin, Capital S, not just sins, although that's true too. We're talking about the pervasive effects of original sin. We're broken. We are all born bent. For one, it might be bent in that direction. 
this direction, whatever, but it's bent nonetheless. So it's for this very reason that Albert rejects the label gay for himself or homosexual Christian. Okay, because for so many, whether outside in the culture or those who are trying to say that this is legitimate for Christians, these labels are used in a way that implies that that orientation is at the core of their very identity. Albrey says, I am far more than my sexuality. So he chooses to use the phraseology same-sex attractive. So 1 Corinthians 6.11 makes it clear that for Christians, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God should be at the core of our identity. That should be at the core of our identity for all of us. You might be bent and tend to really make your identity your performance at work. That can be just as much of an idol. No, our identity as Christians is washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. So it's just, again, just please go read this book. (laughs) I'm so thankful that someone who wrestles with same-sex attraction wrote this book and he just writes so clearly and graciously and yet unflinchingly biblical. He writes to Christians who struggle with SSA in here, giving them advice. He writes to the church, you know, how to be sensitive. He writes to Christians to know how to interact and love their gay friends that are not believers. How do we share the gospel with them? Okay, so so you could hear some of the things I'm saying. You could hear what Paul's saying here, and you could be struggling, and you could be kind of like getting, it's easy for you to say. You have no idea how it feels. You're right. But Sam Alvary does. And I've heard a lot of others that do, and they are speaking openly about it. I can refer you to other resources, blogs, people, books, okay? So I want to let him respond here. He writes this, and this is kind of how he starts the book. It's so helpful. He writes, he's commenting on Romans 1, which is was one of the most important passages talking about how homosexuality is unnatural, okay? He writes, this shows us why it's not true for those with SSA to say, but God made me this way. Listen, Paul's point in Romans 1 is not that our nature as we experience it is not natural. Wait, I need to, I need to read this again. This is really helpful. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. You hear that? And at one point, he, he re- references Jesus in, in Mark 7, where Jesus said, out of a person... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a person, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, coveting, sensuality, envy, and on and on. So it rises up from within us because we're all born bent and broken. Of course, it's going to feel really natural. So he goes on to write, and this is, this is so good. Please hear this. As someone in this situation... What Jesus calls me to do is exactly what he calls anyone to do. And then he quotes Mark 8, 34. 
Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So, if any of you are pushing back in your minds and hearts here for whatever reason, oh, so he's faking it. I guess that's the spiritual route, huh? He's repressing his true self, which is maybe the way it's talked about outside at times. No, he's not faking it. He's trusting Jesus and following him. He's not faking it. He's fighting his old, broken, bent self, denying that bent, broken nature because Jesus died to redeem him from that brokenness. And Jesus is at work to renew and reshape his desires. And that's not to say It's not to say that everyone who experiences SSA and comes to Christ will immediately cease from temptation and all of a sudden will long to be married to a member of the opposite sex. Sometimes that happens, just like sometimes those who are entangled in drug abuse and alcoholism get saved and they just, boom, never struggle with it again. But there's plenty of other genuine believers that come out of drug and alcohol abuse and they have to fight it tooth and nail till the day they die. And Jesus still loves them. There's one way for God to glorify his name with that kind of miraculous, immediate deliverance. There's another way for God to glorify the strength of his grace to sustain you, to keep fighting the good fight all the way to the end. Thorn in the flesh. Messenger of Satan. My grace is sufficient for you. So, um, let's move on here. Third point, verses 12 and the beginning of verse 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You see the quotation marks there, hopefully, in your, in your uh, Bible. All things are lawful for me. You can imagine Paul probably said something like this in the context of eating non-kosher food or traveling on the Sabbath, you know, for the sake of the gospel or whatever. But apparently the Corinthians had taken this freedom slogan out of context and applied it to their sexual ethics. Because, hey, we're free. All things are lawful for me. I'm not under the, the law anymore. I'm under grace. So Paul challenges the misuse of this slogan in two different ways. First, he says that Christians should be people of a maximalist, not minimalist, ethic. He says, but not all things are helpful. Our orientation shouldn't be what's wrong with it or it's not hurting anyone, but rather how is it helping me follow Jesus? So in regards to sexuality, do you think this might be helpful? It might apply to what we watch and what we read and where we draw the lines in dating relationships? All things are lawful for me but I will not be enslaved by anything. So he quotes the slogan, and then he counters it. Here again, they're claiming their spiritual freedom. You know, you can't you just hear them kind of using the language of Galatians in the wrong context. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. But their participation in sexual immorality was not an expression of their freedom. It was actually evidence that they were being ruled by their appetites, their sexual appetites. They were slaves of their appetites, being ruled by those desires. So, of course, there's freedom in the Christian life, freedom from being ruled by your sinful nature and your hormones. 
You're not a slave of your natural impulses. You're, you're a slave of good King Jesus, and you want his kingdom to come, don't you? So all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So beware the temptation. Listen, as we think about our day and time in our own hearts, beware the temptation to use freedom from legalism as a license for immorality. Again, in what we watch, read, etc. Okay, so Paul goes on, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. It's probably not immediately obvious, um, but this slogan is, is quite contemporary. Um, so back then there was, in the minds of many of, of Paul's readers there, they would have had this dualism, this, this uh, you know, what really matters is the spiritual, the physical is not so important, so it really doesn't matter as much what I do with my body. Dualism, physical and spiritual. So, you know, food's meant for the stomach, the stomach's meant for food. When you get hungry, you eat. It's a normal appetite. Well, sex is what our sexual organs are meant for, and sexual organs for sex. When you get sexually hungry, you should be able to satisfy that appetite. It's normal. So someone might say today, God gave us these drives for a reason. Can't actually expect that we would be chased until our wedding day. Okay, so Paul shakes the Corinthians awake from that dualism and he gives them the wide-angle, eternal perspective. God is the one who determines what the body is for. Okay, God will destroy both one and the other. He is the maker and the destroyer of the body. And so we need to come to him, listen to him, He's the one who determines what the body is for. Look where Paul goes then in the rest of verses 13 and 14. God's word on the body. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. God is not anti-body. Okay, he knows what's best for our bodies. He made them. He designed them. He knows what they're for. God likes matter. God knows bodies. He knows what's best for them in, in this life. And our eternal state is not some ethereal, kind of disembodied, floating existence. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead with this glorious, incorruptible body, he also promises to do the same for all who trust in him. So what we do in the body matters to the Lord of the body, the one who made the body and gave us bodies on purpose, for good purposes. So, very interesting where Paul goes from here. Paul could have just given a, a simple rule, like do not commit sexual immorality, full stop. That's not the way he reasons. He wants them to really know and feel what's wrong with sexual immorality. So look at verses 15 to 17. Point number five, your body and the body of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written back in Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. That's what happens when there's consummation like that. But he who is joined to the Lord, united to Christ, becomes one spirit with him. So when we become Christians, we are united to Christ. 
Verse 17 says he is joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. He's our head. We are his body, members of his body. Does the image of Jesus, listen, we are supposed to be repulsed by this. Does the image of Jesus sleeping with a prostitute repulse you? That's the point. It should. So realize the implications of being, if you're a Christian, a member of Christ's body. Our individual bodies are important because they are members of Jesus' body. So when it comes to sexual temptation, use those bodies, use those legs that you were given for running. And obviously it's not just merely running like Joseph did out of the room. In other ways, we can flee, we can X out the, the window on our internet browser, we can do a lot of different things. But certainly Genesis 39 is a a clear illustration of what this looks like. So what does it look like for you? With the internet, with other media, with situations you could find yourself in, with a person at the office, in your thoughts, with your eyes. You may need to run from boredom contexts or being in front of the computer with nobody around or being in certain situations when you're tired or your guard is down. So the command to run is clear. The reasoning that follows is not so clear. (laughs) Look at it there. Every other sin, so flee from sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Oh man, there's a lot of ink spilled trying to untie this knot, and I can't get into the details, but let me just, I think the point is relatively simple. It doesn't mean that, you know, sins like gluttony or being a drunkard aren't aren't against your body in some sense. Of course they are. That kind of stuff does damage. The point is tied up with the context. Joining your body to the body of a prostitute or someone who's not your spouse is to become one flesh, one body with him or her. And so in that sense, there's this unique against your body sin in sexual immorality or against your body implication in sexual immorality. The question becomes, if you are one body, one flesh with a prostitute or someone who's not your spouse, then who are you? Whose are you? Are you really one with Christ? Do you really want to sever that union and and unite instead to this other person? You've given your body who you are away in a way that's hard to get it back. It doesn't mean that this sin can never be forgiven. Such were some of you, okay? But in this sense, there's uniquely dangerous consequence to sexual immorality. So finally, your body worship, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, how many, just, if you just take a highlighter and see how many times Paul says body, it's obvious that this is really important, okay? What you do with your body is immensely important to God. It's a worship issue. That's what's clear in these last two verses. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. The Spirit of God goes everywhere you go. The Spirit of God sees everything you see. The Spirit of God knows everything you think. So are we wanting to, are we walking with the Spirit in where we go? Do we want the Spirit to guard us in what we see? We want the Spirit to fill our thoughts with what is true and honorable and pure and lovely. We are not our own. 
We were bought with a price. Our body is doubly not our own by creation and by redemption rights. We can't be body embezzlers, okay, using what has been given to us for our own selfish ends, or we prostitute with our bodies. Instead, we're supposed to glorify God in our bodies. So do you see the contrast here? I just noticed this, I think, yesterday. See the contrast here with prostitution? What's prostitution? Sex for money. Some give sex for money. Some pay the money for sex. They are both bought for a price. This doesn't just happen with prostitution. Porn is made by those who are willing to do it for a price. And there are tons, even though there's tons of freely available porn, so much porn is purchased, bought for a price. So you can, well, we'll stop there with that. So all of that prostitution, prostitution just doesn't, doesn't happen when women stand on a street corner. We can prostitute ourselves in a, in a thousand different ways. But all of that can wither and die under the power of the gospel. Listen, remember, we have been bought at a price. Isn't that a beautiful contrast to that temptation? This is the book of Hosea all over again. We've all prostituted ourselves as sinners. We've sold ourselves to the highest bidder, and we've cheapened. We've been cheapened by it. We're all used goods. And then Jesus, the perfect, honorable husband, pays the ultimate price to make us his. We have in Christ the ultimate love. We've been redeemed. We've been rescued from the brothel, brought home to be the wife of the king of kings. Why would we ever return to prostitution when we have everything in Christ? So let's pray, and then we'll sing that the Lord would give us clean hands and pure hearts. If the musicians want to come on up now. Lord, I pray that you would, in view of your redemptive mercies, I pray that we would not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may be able to know what your will is, your good, pleasing, and perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.